This is 80s Revisited. I'm your producer, Jesse Sedgley. And now, your host, Trey Harris. Good evening, everyone. The entertainment industry is mourning the death of one of its best-known character actors tonight. Vic Morrow was killed today as he ran along a hillside during a shooting sequence for his latest movie. The 50-year-old actor was running with two small children in his arms. All three were killed. It was a freak accident. A helicopter involved in the movie crashed into them. They died instantly. Six people aboard the copter were injured. They were shooting a scene out at Indian Dunes Park. Morrow and the children were escaping from a simulated Vietnamese village. A battle-type scene, but real explosives apparently accidentally blasted the helicopter out of the sky. Children, six-year-old Renee Chen of Pasadena and seven-year-old Micah Dinle of Cerritos. Today's tragedy is raising many questions about safety conditions in movie making as well as the labor laws which protect child actors. Tonight we have a special Here today to tell us from the future about this accident, Trey Harris of 80s Revisited. Thank you. Welcome everybody back to a very special episode of 80s Revisited as we talk about one of the probably most well-known but also nowadays less known tragedies regarding 80s cinema, 80s films, as we talk about Twilight Zone, the movie, the helicopter accident. So, you know, this might not be the funnest episode, but it's definitely going to be packed with some information. And hopefully when you walk away from this mm-hmm. episode healthily with a good dose of uh, why John Landis is an asshole, according to Trey Harris, but then also, of course, uh, a little more knowledgeable about uh, how these things work, how these things happen and how they can absolutely be avoided. But of course, as always, it's me, your host, Trey Harris. With me as always my producer and confidant and safety manager, Jesse Sedgley. Yes, I am. And so last week, of course, as we teased, and I, I talked about it, uh, you know, we went over the movie last week, separating the art from the artist. Hopefully I don't say that saying 50 times this episode, but just a quick little refresher. Again, the movie actually came out June 24th, 1983. Uh, remember we had four different directors. The first of the, not the most notable, the most infamous of which would be John Landis. Of course, he did the Blues Brothers, Three Amigos, uh, American Werewolf in London. You know he's done some good. St- he's done some great movies. Animal House. He's done some great movies. But he was, as we'll get, we'll, we'll get into it. I want to, you know, I want to let me pre- let's present the information and then let everybody else make their own decision and then listen to me bitch about it as well because that's always the, uh, I guess that's the quote unquote fun part. That's the stick. <laughs> yeah. So you know, and this is uh, I'm just this is going to be a pretty wordy episode. I'm going to be reading a lot. I got about two thousand words on this topic. I will try to paraphrase a little bit. I did try to organize it, but there's a lot of stuff that I wanted to make sure that, if, again, if you just heard about this or you never knew about it or maybe you vaguely remember something in the past, this is the episode to help kind of bring you up to speed about this because this is a big, this is a very big deal. Anytime anybody's actually injured on a movie set where you're making fake reality look like reality, that's a tragedy, a quote unquote accident. Because, you know, we'll get into the, the definition of that later seldomly is it ever children. And in this case, it was a 50-year-old veteran actor and father of Jennifer Jason Lee, a estranged father, actually, unfortunately, at the time of their, his death. And then, you know, two kids, I think they were six and seven years old, you know, just gone because of what I would say criminal negligence, but the courts thought otherwise. So anyway, uh, let's see. So again, the movie came out, it actually released in theaters June 24th, 83, but the accident happened on July 23rd, 82, a little little uh, less than a year from the release of the movie. So uh, again, a lot of this is just going to be facts. We're just going to, I'll go through them as uh, uh, intelligibly as I can. 
<laughs> and then, uh, of course, we'll have quick asides and tangents and everything. But uh, on July 23rd, 1982, at around 2.30 a.m. Uh, at Indian Dunes, which is a ranch in the Valencia neighborhood of Santa Clarita, California, which is not too far from Six Flags, Magic Mountain, and also the Lost Boys Bridge. Uh, it's kind of uh, when you're going up, I'm not sure what interstate it is, but you take a right, you see Magic Mountain, or it might be a left uh, well, the, the, the Lost Boys Bridge is to the right. Magic Mountains to the left, I believe, of that interstate. I've only been there once. And then uh, Indian Dunes is a little bit further past Magic Mountain in kind of the uh, like a riverbed. Actually, I think I might, I might be wrong on this, but I think the same riverbed or the same little quote unquote river, because they're usually dry uh, in California, except for the massive rain we had recently. The same river that the Lost Boys Bridge goes over, I think, might be the same river uh, that runs through Indian Dunes where this was filmed. Not 100 percent sure on that. Uh, but this was a location that was used in a lot of 80s movies and TV shows. Color Purple, Escape from New York was shot there, part of it. Uh, MacGyver, China Beach. The location itself is in what's known as the 30-mile zone. And basically that 30-mile zone is 30 miles from the epicenter of L.A. where you can go and shoot stuff, do pyrotechnics and all that kind of stuff. And there's no what is it, light pollution from L.A. or anything. So you can go out there and it can be dark. You can blow stuff up, that kind of stuff, uh, without city lights or anything like that in the background. Uh, in the scene in question, Richard Sawyer was the production designer. He built this amazing Vietnam village. Uh, more on him in a little bit when I get to more of the, uh, after we get into it a little bit. Amazing set, ama very amazing set that the guy built for it. Because this, uh, actually, I got more information on this. So I'm getting a little ahead of myself, just kind of summation, summa uh, summarizing. Uh, but anyway, uh, the scene called for Vic Morrow's character, which we saw last episode. You know, he's a racist bigot. Uh, to carry two children, Renee Shinyi Chen and Micah Din Lee. Hope, um, uh, I'm not sure if I pronounced this exactly right, so please forgive me. The girl was six, the boy was seven. Out of a deserted village and across a shallow river, which shallow, if you watch the footage, again, I don't recommend it. You know, it's there if you want to see it. They, and they show it from multiple angles. The, the grisly angle is what I'll call it, is at the end. So if you just kind of want to see a, the general thing happen, you can see it from an angle that's, you know, you're like, oh, but it's not... Too grisly, at least. But you can see, you know, kind of he's walking across it. I mean, this is he's 50 years old. He's carrying a six year old and a seven year old, one under each arm, while wading through hip deep water with explosions and a helicopter circling. So, I mean, it's first of all, that's kind of dangerous to begin with. But also, I don't think I could do that at 41, mm. uh, almost 42, unfortunately, you know, carrying, you know, two, one kid. Yeah, but two, I mean, under each arm. I mean, that's. That's not easy, even for you know, a, you know anybody. I think would have a uh, trouble doing that. But anyway, uh, he's doing that while they're being pursued by uh, American soldiers in a hovering UH-1B helicopter. Which though, you, you hear the term Huey thrown around, that, that that's what a Huey is. It's a UH-1B helicopter. So it was an actual Huey, uh, and the helicopter itself was piloted by uh, a Vietnam War veteran himself, Dorsey Wingo. And uh, during the filming, he stationed his helicopter about 25 feet from the ground, 7.6 meters for our metric system friends, while hovering near a large mortar effect. And he turned the aircraft, the helicopter, about 180 degrees to the left for the next camera shot, as they had, you know, was planned. The effect was detonated while the helicopter's tail rotor was still above it, causing the rotor to, the technical term is delineate. But basically it means it fell off and detached from the tail. If you know anything about helicopters, they have to have the top rotor and the back rotor. If they don't have one of those, it falls like a rock as you can see here. Uh, as a result of that, the low-flying helicopter, it spun out of control pretty much right at the same time. You know, unfortunately enough, Moro dropped Chin into the water. He was reaching out to grab her and pick her up 
when the helicopter fell on top of him and the two children. Now, we'll be, uh, I wanted the details here. If you don't want to hear the details, just skip ahead a little bit. But Moro and the boy were pretty much instantly decapitated uh, by the main rotor blades while the little girl was crushed to death by the helicopter's right landing skid. Thankfully, they all died instantly. If there's anything to just be happy about, it was just, you know, blink and they're gone, which, you know, in this instance is absolutely a good thing. But all six people in the chopper were pretty much okay for the most part. They all survived. The attorney who defended John Landis, uh, James Neal, who along with George Foley Jr., uh, Dan Allingham, Paul Stewart, and Dorsey Wingo were all charged with involuntary manslaughter. And spoiler alert, they were all found not guilty. So that's kind of the who, what, when, where, and the the basic, basic basically what happened. Everything else is going to be just some kind of details about, you know, giving some more... Uh, Actually, you know what? I think I think it might be best. Just I'm just going to go through all the notes, and then we'll talk about because that way everybody listening will have the same information that I've read over countless times, putting this together and documentaries and all sorts of stuff. And that way, then we can all have an adult discussion to where y'all get to listen, and then you can send us an email at agevisited at gmail and such to uh, put in your thoughts on it. But uh, John Lannis never has never to this day. Public, publicly accepted any kind of responsibility for the accident. Uh, he stated, and this is a quote, this is a terrible, terrible accident, and it will cause pain and anguish to all of us for the rest of our lives. I can think of nothing worse than losing a child. The idea that this could be anything other than an unforeseeable accident is not only wrong, it's bewildering, end quote. It's that last part. I agree with everything he says until that point. point. Saying that this was anything other than an unforeseeable accident is his words not only wrong, it's bewildering. Based on what comes to light in this trial, and I've been on a movie set as an extra. I don't, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm not a director that has movies under his belt like he did, or Spielberg, or anybody who was on this set, you know. However, it's when you're doing things illegally, as we'll get into, yeah, it's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. So anyway, let me let me not get again. Try to calm down, Trey. I know. Calm down. <laughs> okay. At at the trial, Landis blamed the special effects coordinator Paul Stewart and the stunt pilot Dorsey Wingo for not coordinating the scene properly. He denied responsibility for that, claiming, "quote that I assume that if these men are experts, licensed by the governments to do their jobs, they've done their jobs." Dot dot dot. When you get into a taxi, you assume the driver is not going to drive you off a bridge. It's just assumptions. The guy is a light licensed taxi driver. Now, I don't necessarily disagree with that, with that, with that particular statement. So I would say he's right in saying that. However, a quick aside here, there's a hierarchy on the movie set. You know, your producers are pretty much, if they're there, which a lot of the times producers aren't on set because – they're in their offices downtown LA, their penthouses or whatever, or, you know, they're just providing the money for the most part and giving feedback. Unless there's like a big stunt or something. Yeah. Then you might have producers there. For example, supposedly Spielberg was there at the time of the accident and hightailed his ass out of there to not be associated with it because his name's already on the movie. Uh, that's all speculation. That's, that's my inflection, not uh, any kind of actual fact that I've read about it. And there is a book on it. I don't have the guy's name in front of me. There is like a detailed book about this entire incident. The name of the book is Outrageous Conduct. That's by Stephen Farber. It's on the uh, curse. They mentioned it on the Curse Films documentary on Shudder. More on that in a little bit. Same thing what we're dealing with today with the Rust, the tragedy with Alec Baldwin on Rust. Every time I hear something come out about that quote, quote, unquote, accident, is that it's it's just a Spider-Man meme of the Spider-Man pointing their fingers at each other. Like every time somebody says something, somebody's no, it's this person. No, it's this person. 
There is a hierarchy on movie sets when you're there actually filming and the person everybody has to report to, to my knowledge and based on what I've researched, correct me if I'm wrong, any film people out there listening, is pretty much the director when you're on the set. Or the whoever you know, whoever's in, you know we might maybe if you're on second unit then it's a second unit director, or whatever. So there is the buck stops somewhere. And for me on this movie it was John Landis as we we'll get more into. So let me let me pick back up. A different interview Landis said when you read about the act quote when you read about the accident they say we were blowing up huts which we weren't and that the debris hit the tail rotor of the helicopter which it didn't. The FBI crime lab who was working for the prosecution finally figured out that the tail rotor de- uh, I said delineated it's delaminated excuse me. Uh, correct myself from earlier, which is why the pilot lost control. The special effects man who made the mistake by setting off a fireball at the wrong time was never charged. The special effects man in question was Games uh, Chamomile, I guess like the T. Uh, he as well as second assistant director Andy House and several special effects crew members were indeed never charged because the prosecution had offered them immunity from prosecution in exchange for testimony. In the end, it has never become unequivocally clear what caused the malfunction as some expert witnesses counter-argued that the explosion fires would not have been hot enough to instantly delaminate the tail rotor. So now we're kind of getting it. Now you now you can kind of see what's happening here. You're getting a lot of finger pointing, a lot of you know, this did it. No, this did it. Well, the you know the FBI crime lab fake news, blah blah blah. You know you got people that say all that kind of crap, uh, saying that the fireball did it, which delaminated the tail rotor. Which if you look at the pictures, the tail rotor is not on the helicopter. It's like separate from it. So it, although like when the first time I read it, that was my first thought is that like. The fireball from a controlled set explosion is hot enough to melt off a tail rotor, which I don't know these things. I'll take it for I'll take experts for what they say. However, you have people who, you know, you have expert quote, expert witnesses counter argue that, but you have to trust, you know, you have to go. You have to trust somebody here as to what happened in terms of, you know, where you're going to put your eggs in, in which basket. You know, and the FBI crime lab investigated. They're an impartial party. I would say in this they're not like somebody hired by the studio to do anything. They're doing what they can. This is what they come up with. You know, I, I will, I will, what's the word? I will defer. There you go. I will defer to their findings as being the the most backed up or investigated, I should say. So, you can see we're already kind of knee deep in whose, whose fault is it actually really? So let's just keep going here. Uh, the scene being shot actually was an added on scene to, quote, soften the character of Bill Connor in the in the movie for because he was I mean you watch it in the beginning I mean he's an absolute racist asshole you want Creighton Duke to pop up in the back and beat the shit out of him how racist he is and just how vile and the sad thing is there's still people you know you I think that's a big problem to, in society today people think oh that's a, that's that's people back then nah bros and and sisters that's people today too like never like that just doesn't go away in a generation. They basically put this scene in just to give his character a redemption. So then when he gets hauled off, going to the concentration camp at the end, which is the actual original ending of that segment. They didn't change the ending. That is the ending. This scene that cost three lies was just to make a bigot look a little more sympathetic. Which, you know what? Even if that had happened, he still got what he deserved, in my opinion, in the movie. You know, the end, you didn't change the ending. Why do you want to make people feel for him? How about you show what happens when you're a, you know, a goddamn racist? That's what happens. Make it a metaphor for their soul or something. I don't care. Get a little off tangent or off topic here. Well, on topic, tangently on topic. Put it that way. So anyway, uh, so yeah, uh, they wrote that in. Landis wrote it in because the producers actually were the ones that kind of said that. And I believe I mentioned the producers again already. 
like, hey, you need to soften this character up. So the producers are the ones that made that wanted them to do this scene. It's their fault. You know, you see there, there's a lot of finger pointing and blaming to be done here. And that's, uh, you know, it's kind of our each each and every person's own responsibility, kind of have your own opinion of, you know, who really is at fault here and, and, and stuff like that. So lost my spot. Let me find it. Sorry. I get, this note is like a page in the Bible. My notes on this are literally <laughs> like, there's so many notes. Cause I was trying to, I'm trying to get like all the, all the vital information. Yeah. The original scripted ending is kept in leaving him, leaving his character change unaddressed, which, you know, the fact that this scene obviously is not in the movie because an adult and two children were manslaughtered. Uh, involuntarily manslaughtered in it to use, I guess, a more, I think, a correct term instead of accidentally killed. You know, so the scene's not even in the movie. It, it released, the movie came out, the, the segment came out without that. And as I talked about last week, I think it's, a, you know, separate, again, I'm going to say it again, sorry, separating the art from the artist. The segment isn't bad. He got what he deserved. It was, it was Twilight Zone-esque in that. You didn't even need this scene. This was a needless scene that cost three lives that you didn't use. And in the end, it didn't make a difference. Which hindsight's twenty twenty. Don't get me wrong; I understand that. Uh, and this is creepy. Uh, as Vic Mora was waiting to film the scene, which ended up taking his life, he allegedly allegedly said to a production assistant, "Quote: I must be out of my mind doing this. I should have asked for a stunt double. What can they do but kill me? Right?" End mm. quote. Kind of chilling. Previously, he was filming a movie called Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry in 74, which has got a that's a that's a, that's a name of a movie. Uh, he insisted on having a one million dollar life insurance policy before he would shoot any scenes involving a helicopter, which he was due to ride in. He was very insistent when he did that. And alle- again, you got the allegedly's here. So, again, grain of salt. He allegedly quoted was quoted as saying, I've always had a premonition I was going to die in a helicopter crash. So again, remember everybody, allegedly, it's, it's, it's a creepy story, but it's mm-hmm. allegedly. Just keep that in mind. Now let's get into the illegal aspect that really fuels a lot of my distaste for John Landis. Renee Chin and Micah Din Lee were being paid under the table, which, you know, that's fine if you're an adult because you know better. But these kids in there, you know, and they're, you know, I mean, their parents, I mean, do you blame the parents for that? I don't know. Did they know they were being paid under the table? There's a lot of he said, she said going on on every aspect of this. That's why it's so real. It's just so difficult to actually say who to blame, you know, and what percentage of that blame they need. But they were being paid under the table to circumvent California's child labor laws, which did not permit children to work at night. And John Landis admitted to doing this illegal act. Wow. But he opted not to seek a special waiver to not make it illegal because he didn't think he would get permission for such a late hour. He denied it because he was he thought it would he would never get approval having young children's part of a scene with a low hovering helicopter and a large number of explosives. You're goddamn right because look what fucking happens when you do stuff like that. Oh, just I, see, I'm getting. Ooh, calm down. <sighs> okay, sorry. When if you have kids, um, uh, you're probably feeling my rage. If you don't have kids. Believe me, once you have a kid and you and you read about something like this, how you know a six and a seven year old aren't here today living their life because of negligence, it makes you mad. Uh, a little madder than if I'm not saying if you don't have kids, you don't understand. But believe me, I can. I'm speaking from my personal opinion. When you do have a kid of your own, your perspective changes a lot more than before. You're a different person when you have a kid. Most people, I would say, I can only speak for me, but I would assume that that feeling goes for a lot of people. So the, in the investigation that followed, the assistant directors claimed that they had, that they had felt quote, uncomfortable with the situation 
But Landis saw no harm, so there would have been no point trying to convince him to fill in the scene without the children. Now, again, this is this was done the early '80s was what's called the New Hollywood era, which that was from the maybe early to mid '70s. Maybe it's when it kind of started. It's when directors were like the hot shots. They were the movie stars, kind of. They were uh, they were like you know they were doing all this all this crazy stuff and making these movies. You had your Scorsese and and Carpenter even uh, with Halloween in his early days. So he might not be considered part of that because he was kind of indie. So I I really shouldn't put him in that. But, you know, Landis, Scorsese, Coppola, Spielberg, you know, it was it was about the director. The director was like the head honcho. He was the he was calling the shots. He was making they were doing the inventive stuff. It was very. uh, You know, big egos, which I think is a huge part of why this happened in that day and age, like on the set, you didn't contradict the director. It was, you know. Add form, Peter, as Dustin Hoffman would say in Hook. You just didn't do it because, like, the director would say, "Oh, well, get the fuck out of here. You're not. I don't want you here anymore. Uh, you know, get off the set, et cetera, et cetera." Uh, and they had the power to do that. Of course, producers did have the power over the director, but this was an age in Hollywood where it's like, "Wow, this is a hot shot director. He's making some great, innovative films, getting a lot of press. Let him do what he wants." They didn't have any. They didn't rein him in. A lot, like a lot of times you hear nowadays. Like one example that always sticks with or always remembered was uh, on the Sixth Sense. If you have the DVD or the Blu-ray, I'm not sure if the Blu-ray still has the same, all the same special features. M. Night talks about how his original ending got cut. The producers made him take off his original ending. And he fought for it and he fought for it. And they said, no, 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 we're not doing this. And he finally had to acquiesce. And then in hindsight, he's like watching the movie and seeing how the reaction happened. It was the right call. The producers overrode me for a good reason in that case. But in this – again – in this day and age, early eighties in filmmaking, it, that was not the case. The director was for lack of a better word, God, and actually was John Landis was playing God with these people's lives on the set of this movie. And then the casting agents were also unaware that the children would be involved in this scene. Associate producer, George Folsey jr. Had told the children's parents not to tell any firefighters on set that the children were part of the scene. And he hid them from a fire safety official who worked as a welfare worker. So you see, there's all these, all these, you know, if this was a, this could be a Netflix, like nine part documentary and the stinger is like, oh, well then this associate producer said to do this, another person to point the finger at. But Ali, if, if my child wanted to be an actor, I would support that. But if they come and told me something like that, fuck you, me and my kid are out of here. No, you're doing stuff above the table legally, et cetera, et cetera, because that's how it's going to be done safely. Bottom, I mean, and the proof is in the YouTube footage that you can see of this accident, as far as I'm concerned. A fire safety officer who was concerned, unnamed, that the blast would cause a crash and shared his concerns with a superior. And again, there's no names on this, but the superior told him to, quote, take it to the filmmakers. And the safety officer did not tell Landis of his concerns, claiming that, quote, and again, there's no name associated with this. It's just a quote that uh, that's not the way the chain of command works in the fire department. So, again, uh, I didn't do anything wrong. Uh, That's not how it works. Well, you know what? Not speaking up to save someone's life is not how anything works in any business or project or anything. That's not how any common sense works for anybody when you're talking about the lives of people. Like I said, it gets more infuriating the more you hear all these little – any of these people could have said something, could have done something to prevent this happening. Oh, it was the early 80s. Like you said, it was the new Hollywood era. Yes, and that's a, that was a problem. And, of course, we don't see that until an adult and two children are dead. 
At the trial over the accident, uh, the defense claimed that the explosions were set off during filming were detonated at the wrong time. Randall Robinson, an assistant cameraman who was on the helicopter, he testified that the production manager, Dan Allingham, told the pilot, Dorsey Wingo, quote, that's too much. Let's get out of here when the explosions were detonated. But John, the director, Landis, shouted on the radio, get lower, get lower, get over. And they listened to the director. Robinson said that Wingo tried to leave the area, but we, quote, we lost control and regained it, and then I could feel something let go, and we began spinning around in circles, end quote. Another camera operator on the, uh, on the, uh, on the uh, helicopter, uh, Steve Lidecker, testified that Landis had earlier, quote, shrugged off, end quote, warnings about the stunt with the comment, it was Landis who said, uh, made a comment, well, we may lose the helicopter. My inflection, not his, because this is a quote. So, but Lidecker said he thought he was joking about the remark. He said after the fact, and this is a Lidecker quote, I learned not to take anything that man said as a joke. It was his attitude. He didn't have time for suggestions from anybody, end quote. To me, that's, a, that's, that's one nail in a coffin for me right there. You have all these people telling you this is not safe. Don't do this. Something could happen. And because of your ego and your, you know, the, the new Hollywood era cavalierness of directors, you go through it anyway. And look, again, the proof is six feet underground in three different locations because of pride. And God damn it, it's, it's fucking, it, ugh, I'm angry. Anyway, the trial, la- the, the, in total, the trial lasted nearly a decade. Lee, one of the kids, fa- Lee's father, uh, he was a psychologist, Dr. Daniel Lee, testified that he heard director John Landis instructing the helicopter to fly lower. That's the second person that's confirmed that. Two, two people on there have confirmed that he said that. All four parents testified they were never told there would be helicopters or explosives on set and were reassured that there would be no danger, only noise. Uh, Dr. Lee, who also is a Vietnam, he's, I mean, he's not a veteran, he survived the war. He immigrated with his wife here to the U.S., and he was horrified. It's like a IMDb quote. So I should say reportedly. He was reportedly horrified when the explosions began on the Vietnamese village set, which brought gave him flashbacks of the actual Vietnam War. So hey, points for realism, hmm. but that doesn't matter in the end because of what happened. Uh, Landis became the first film director to be charged with a fatality on a movie set. The families of the children settled for millions of dollars. Landis continued to work, which we got the three amigos after that, which, you know. If I if if I could if I if I had to give up my love for one of the greatest comedies ever made, Three Amigos, to bring three people back from the dead, you goddamn well bet your ass I would take. I would you know let's erase let's uh, Doctor Strange it. Uh, we forget Three Amigos and John Landis's career's over. Well, actually, no, that, oh, never mind. Someone That's, else would have done it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or just 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 forget about. He, just don't make him a director I and mean, take away all of his movies forever and bring these people back to life. Okay, I was I was kind of going on a. Yeah, he Far didn't from write Three Amigos, so someone else would have directed. Yeah, somebody could have done fine. From the crew, he was most pretty much the only one that still ha- got work in Hollywood after this. Yet, in my opinion, he's the one who should have, you know, he should have gone to jail. Absolutely. Producer and co-director Steven Spielberg. Yes, Spielberg, the high and mighty oh, oh, god of directors, so to speak. Uh, was so disgusted by Landis's handling of the situation, which is good, absolutely. He ended their friendship and publicly called for the end of the, as I mentioned before, new Hollywood era, where, direct, again, directors had almost complete control over the film. He said that the fatal accident had, quote, made me grow up a little more, end quote, and had left everybody who worked on the movie, quote, 
sick to the center of our souls, end quote. With regard to how the crash influenced people's attitudes toward safety, Spielberg went on to say, no movie, quote, no movie is worth dying for. I think people are standing up much more now than ever before to producers and directors who ask too much. If something isn't safe, it's the right and responsibility of every actor or crew member to yell cut, end quote. Yes. However, Stephen, why, do, you know, it, it, I guess it's a human, it, this is a human thing. It takes a tragedy to make people realize something that's, that's true. Like you could tell, you know, we can all tell our spouses something 50 times and somebody else says it's true and they finally believe it. It's just like, if this is common sense and what they say about common sense, it ain't so common, but you know, it costs three, three lives to make, Oh, we should be more safe on this movie set with helicopters and explosions and shooting real bullets and all this other stuff. You're goddamn right. Why does it take death to make you realize that? So he's right on that, but you know, little, you know, it shouldn't have taken that to come to that realization. And that goes for everybody on a movie set either. If you see something that's dangerous, that could that even if it has the chance of killing somebody or hurting somebody, you speak up. I don't care who's if if I was a guest, Spielberg's like, I heard your episode of the Twilight Zone, Trey. I'm gonna let you come because you I think you had some good thoughts on it. Oh, thank you, Mr. Spielberg. I appreciate that. It's an honor. And then I'm by, I'm just sitting there and I see that doesn't look safe. I'll be like, oh hey, is that you know, I'm gonna speak up. I'm the I, I'm the type of person that I'd like to, let me phrase that. You never know how you're going to act in a crisis. I'm the type of person that I like to think would speak up <laughs> based <laughs> on my personality. So I'll put it, you know, I'll, I got to be, let's be fair here to humanity, you know, how we all function as humans. Uh, George Miller, the director of the Nightmare at 20,000 Feet segment and Mad Max, uh, was so repulsed by the entire scenario, he abandoned post-production work of his segment. Filming was completed, and it was eventually edited for the film, but not by Miller, because he just was like, you know, he was just like, what, that happened on this movie? Fuck this, I'm out. Awesome. Good job, George. Uh, John Land, and we, I did mention on the Trading Places episode, I kept this piece of trivia, and this is the genesis of why we're doing this movie. Or we had a Twilight Zone last week and talking about this accident this week. But uh, of course, John Landis directed Trading Places, starring Eddie Murphy, as well as Coming to America with Eddie Murphy and Beverly Hills Cop 3 with Eddie Murphy. They were close friends, but as a result, Landis resented, always resented that Eddie Murphy did not support him while he was still embroiled in the manslaughter case against them. Landis wanted Eddie Murphy to testify as a character witness on his behalf, or at least show up in trial as a show of support. Murphy refused. Mm. Eddie Murphy, you're a hero. Uh, he said that the, he said, Murphy said the following about his conflict with Landis in a Playboy interview. Quote, as it turned out, John always resented I hadn't gone to his Twilight Zone trial. I never knew that. I thought we were cool. He had always been har but he had been harboring it for a year. Every now and then he would make little remarks like, you didn't help me out. You don't realize how close I was to going to jail. I never paid any mind to it, Murphy said, in quote, or, you know, the quote in his before I said Murphy said. Uh, he goes on to suddenly indict Landis in the accident, or at least assign him some of the blame. In the same interview, Murphy says, quote, I don't want to say he was guilty or he was innocent, but if you're directing a movie and two kids get their, his, his words, get their heads chopped off at 12 o'clock at night when there ain't supposed to be kids working and you said action, then you have some sort of responsibility. So my principles wouldn't let me go down there and sit in court. That's just the way I am, end quote. Mm. Eddie Murphy, everybody. Nail on the head. Uh, in a mid-'80s New York Times article, the reporter asked Eddie Murphy, what was the likelihood that Murphy would work with one-time collaborator John Landis again? Murphy's quote, without hesitation, he, quote, he said, quote, Vic Morrow has a better chance of working with Landis than <laughs> I do, end quote. There you go. That's most of it. Let me just finish up some of the fact stuff here, and then we can kind of talk about it amongst ourselves. 
according to John Larroquette, he requested to watch the filming that night because he wanted to see the stunts and everything. But his car was stolen the night before and he was unable to get to the set. As a result of the fatal accident, assistant director Andy House had his name removed from the credits and replaced with the pseudonym Alan Smithy, which we also saw David Lynch do for the theatrical version of Dune. Uh, and following the film's in- the incident on this film said, accidents during film filming between 1982 and 1986 fell by 69.6%, although there were still six deaths, deaths on movie sets between 82 and 86. So, you know, did some good, co- well, 66, 69% drop in accidents is a good thing. Shouldn't even be, you know, the fact six people still died between in those four years after this is still frankly shocking, but this is nothing new. And as we all know, still goes on today. 2021, Helena Hutchins, prop gun discharged with a live round on the set of Rust. 2017, Joy Harris, motorcycle crash on Deadpool 2. 2014, Sarah Jones, hit by a train filming a movie called Midnight Rider. Uh, 2012, Michael Bridger, drowned, the Lone Ranger. Uh, 2007, Conway Wycliffe, vehicle crash during a test run for the Dark Knight, killed him. And arguably... The most famous onset death ever, 1993, Brandon Lee, prop gun misfire on The Crow. Uh, so, you know, the second it happened on Rush, that's the first thing I thought about was Brandon Lee. That's, that's the one that's that's the first one that always comes to mind. Uh, and so this isn't this is nothing. It, this still happens. It's, it, it, and it's fresh in our minds right now because of Alec Baldwin on Rust, you know, and like I said, and, and look at the parallels between what happened on the Twilight Zone set to the Rust set. Oh, the, the prop master put a bullet in there. Oh, no, I didn't. I didn't know there were live rounds. Well, the, who's, the director has, who has culpability, you know, it's like there's so much just pointing, finger pointing and blaming in both these incidents. It's like, no, there, there, there is a line somewhere for each of these instances the rust one, I haven't looked into it too much. I can't say I don't want to comment anything for posterity on that. But it seems to me, from what I know, it should have, the prop master is the one in charge of the props. If a prop had a live round in it, that's the fault of the prop master, no matter who pull it, put it in there. That's the person that has to take the blame. As far as I know, based on my knowledge, please correct me if I'm wrong. Now, same, now as we've gone over, oh, one last, here, here's the kicker. Here is the kicker for this, and then we're going to talk about this. Finally. At the end of the movie, and I watched all the credits, sat through them just like I used to do back in the day. Uh, Then fast forward, I watched them all, read every line of it for uh, Twice on the movie last week. There is no dedication, no mention, nothing to Vic Morrow or the two children in the credits. They wanted you to forget this happened, and most people have, but not here. Not here. You fuck up, it is an eternal fuck up when it costs the lives of children. Or if, her, if, you, if somebody is murdered on your watch or killed on your watch, in, in this instance, in, in the case, in this case, it should not be forgotten. John Landis never should have directed another movie after this, ever. He should have gone to jail. He should have something, but he got nothing. Just a lot of, you know. I, I, now I'm sure, I'm sure mentally, you know, the the thought every time it's brought up, I'm sure that's something hard to deal with. Not discounting that because I know that would be. However, you know that's the least that you got. You know, out of this, you should have got you should got something physical, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, but they they wanted you to forget that this happened. There was a news blurb. The trial went on for a decade. Most people don't even know about this. A because the movie, you know, kind of the movie kind of came out and went. Nobody really thinks about it anymore. The movie, you know, when you mention the Twilight Zone, mo- ninety nine 
not I'll be a little more reasonable. Ninety percent of people don't think about this accident or this movie. They think about Rod Serling, you know, with a mention of time, you know, the OG black and white Twilight Zone or Jordan Peele's remake, which had mixed reviews, but I thought it was fine. I enjoyed it. Uh, so yeah, there you go. That's as you know, without reading the entire book that, on the subject, that's most of the the big details. So you got a lot of talking heads, a lot of pointing fingers, and nobody saying, you know what, it was my fault. Because nobody wanted to take the rap for this. However, based on everything that I've, I've said, everything that we've gone over, that I've read about this, it is my personal opinion that at, at the end of the day, this was no matter what about the effects, you know, that it, it uh, delaminated the, the rotor blade because of pilot era and the guy said it all, you know, two people fucked up, pilot wrong time. Uh, special effects at wrong time. The person in charge of this whole situation was John Landis. And he could have any time. No, stop, cut. And that one word, any of those words would have saved the lives of Vic Morrow and those two kids that had no future because of, in my opinion, criminal negligence on his hat, on his behalf. You have multiple people on set saying it's dangerous. You're a fucking director. It's like the Mitch Hedberg joke. You don't have to ask a cook. Oh, you're a cook. Can you farm? No, you can't because you're a cook. Farmers farm. Cookers cook. Directors direct. You have directors that have come like uh, the guy that directed John Wick was a stunt coordinator. He brought that knowledge to a directing position, and it worked. Look at John Wick. It's amazing. Uh, all three of them, mainly the first two, <laughs> to be honest. John Landis is an egotistical, big-headed director at this time who, to, whose word was law on set and therefore is the person, in my opinion, most directly responsible for this happening. You're paying kids under the table. You're illegally having them on set you're lying to the parents about what's going on you're telling a helicopter to come down lower on top of your actors that aren't stunt people you know if you have stunt people who are their sign everybody's in agreement for it and this happens you got a little more leeway in my book because that's you know nobody uh well I, not nobody none of the people who died had thought well, Vic Morrow reported, you know, supposedly had worries about it, which I would too as an adult. Kids are probably just having fun, like, oh, we're on a movie set, this is so cool, and then gone. It's just, this is a, this is a sickening accident. And like I said, you can watch, go to, go to YouTube, just search it. Uh, be warned, as I said last week, I'll warn you again. It's they have a slow motion angle of it, and it is incredibly graphic. It is an image that will burn itself into your brain, and you'll think about it occasionally randomly when you think about this movie or you listen to this episode again because you want or you recommend this episode to somebody else like yep you'll probably think yep i probably didn't need to see that but the the uh the master the overhead angle you don't really see anything you see the helicopter kind of fall on them and i've already told you the details of what happened in my opinion that's enough unless you want nightmares so uh yeah in my opinion this is this is all landis's fault absolutely no matter if somebody set something off at the wrong time you had again you know, to refortify my my hill that I'm dying on here. It doesn't matter if the special effects guy thing went off wrong, you know, early and the pilot was late moving the tail rotor or, you know, whatever. You have a lot of moving parts in a film set. So there are a lot of things that went wrong for this to happen. That is true. But at the end of the day, the buck on the on the set of the Twilight Zone, the buck stopped at Landis's desk. And you have reports of multiple people Telling of him shouting for the helicopter to come lower on top of the actors and the children. You have multiple people who said like, "Hey, John, this is this is, might not be a good idea." 
And it's just like, oh, you know, fuck you, I'm John Lanus is basically what I'm getting as the reply. And with his son being embroiled in sex controversy, you know, uh, being a jackass, Apple didn't far fall, fall from the tree. Apple did not fall far from the tree in the Landis family. Uh, so, yeah, uh, again, they have a book. But uh, also there's a Shudder. If you, if you watch Shudder for Joe Bob like I do, they also have some other great original series. They have one called Cursed Films. They have one on The Crow, which I, I recommend all of them. They're all fascinating and they're well done. And they talk to people who were there. And they do, they do like, like they show you how a, in, in the example of the crow, how a, uh, how the, the barrel obstruction, when you put the blank round behind there, propels the obstruction out just as fast as a bullet. And it's, you know, when you see, when they show the demonstration, it's like, oh my God. Like, yeah, I mean, Brandon Lee straight up got point blank shot in the chest. Uh, they do a great job of showing you everything, everything that you, they can show, talking to people who agreed to talk to them. Uh, and the Twilight Zone episode is an absolute banger of an episode uh, in terms of just the interviews. They go over all the aspects of it. They uh, Kane Hodder's on it as well, giving a, a stuntman's perspective. They give like they do give perspective on it. Uh, but Rich, Richard Sawyer again was the production designer, and you know his interview in that episode of Curse Films is absolute. Is that's the reason to watch it? He was there. He saw everything. He had his, he talks about his worries. And of course, hindsight's 2020. But when you look at his face and that man starts to cry, it's just like, like this, this is the cost of, you know, Landis's pride, you know, and how it ruined his career. And then Landis is still working. You know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous in my personal opinion. Uh, so I guess that's kind of all I got to say about <laughs> it for the most part. Uh, an absolutely in my notes, uh, you know, I have, my section, this, this is called the avoidable accident is that my headline for this note, you know, is it an accident? Is It's an accident that it crashed, but what, you know, when everybody tells you don't do this, it's something, you know, there's a high probability of danger and injury. Is it still an accident? I don't know. You know, that's, I guess that's the philosophical more. So I'll leave our listeners with this week. You know, is it still technically an accident? You know, Hey, if you do that, this is not safe. This is not going to work. And then something bad happens. You know, it's, you know, when you see the writing on the wall, what do you do? If you're John Landis, you go through it and you get people murdered, uh, killed, excuse me. Uh, so yeah, no love lost for John Landis here. Again, I'll, I'll say it one last time. I will separate the art from the artist. The man's made some great movies, but he made a decision on the set of this movie that ended three lives and affected hundreds at least after this because of one decision and you know it's it's just it's like that old saying like you, you, you heard the expression of the nail for want of a nail the tie, you know, the horse is lost there it goes on to like how like uh you know one nail can change the course of history you know like not saying cut or not saying you know what jesse we were talking about this off camera too before mm -hmm. how you know there's such things as forced perspective to where if you want your actors in the shot with this helicopter you can have the helicopter a hundred feet behind them and shoot it with the right lens and right angle, and it looks like it's right on top of them without endangering anybody. But no, we have to make it real. Well, that's why you have stunt people. That's why you have these laws that avoid children working in these situations because of stuff like this. So <laughs> I'm done. I'm finished, to quote Daniel Day-Lewis from There Will Be Blood. <laughs> Jesse, I pretty much talked the entire time. Didn't let you get a word in edgewise. I'd love to hear your thoughts. However, as you always bring a fresh and different perspective to 
all the things that I ran in tangent on about. So the floor is yours, my friend. I don't know if I can bring a new perspective in this. I mean, pretty much the writing's on the wall. Um, he seemed pretty worried about it, rightfully so, because he knew it was wrong. And he yeah. got away with it. And uh, yeah, the, I can't understand how something so obvious even to the person doing the crime uh, would be overlooked. And especially even if he didn't go to jail, I mean, he's still working. <laughs> yeah. That's, the, that's a crazy thing. And at that time working often. Yeah. Big, <laughs> some big stuff came after this, you know, yeah. in terms of his, his career. You yeah, know, we're, not, we're not talking about the last 20 years, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, during that time, every year, multiple projects still. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess it's just a different Hollywood thing where they see a name and they're like, but don't care about the bad stuff. I'm just thinking of all the good stuff that will help my own career. So I will yeah. work with this person. And there it is. Except Eddie Murphy. So, well, yeah, Eddie Murphy still worked with him, but he, you know, you know, that, that reading that, that's why when I, when I read that doing the trivia for trading places, I was like, like that gave me a whole new respect for Eddie Murphy, you know, like very rare. I mean, I say very rarely, but you don't often hear stories of, you know, celebrities, you know, uh, I mean, that, that was a very perceptive and at that time, especially, you know, in my opinion, what he said, very poignant for, and to show his character, a very, yeah. you know, there's a saying that, uh, one of my old bosses told me and I've, I've, I've it's, probably one of the greatest things I've ever heard of like, you know, it's, it's become a mantra for me. You get a million opportunities to make money, but a precious few to prove your character. And Eddie Murphy proved his character, I think by, you know, you know, well, John, you fucked up, you know, that's yeah. plain. That's how it is. You know, I'm not going to come stand by you when you did something wrong, like, you know, and justify that. So but a lot of respect for Eddie Murphy. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, I wouldn't say I lost respect for him. I lost respect for him as an actor when he did Pluto Nash and some bad, you know, some, really bad movies but you know man still got it you know it's uh when he came back on snl like we talked about he just seems like a great guy uh and he's got a good head on his shoulders at least uh you know regarding this situation i can't speak for you know transvestites and all that kind of stuff in his his past go go wikipedia or go google it uh but hey it doesn't matter it doesn't make him less of a person less of a good dude uh but yeah uh, anything else jesse about this horrible horrible tragedy this avoidable tragedy that occurred in 1982 yeah um i'd like to think there's a lot of stories that we haven't heard of people standing up to them you know that's Mm -hmm. not going to make the news uh if somebody declines or stands in his way and you know i hope people still remind him of it and uh is there a time where he can live it down i don't know because he hasn't really acknowledged that it's a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's not, I mean, he acknowledged that he's living with it, but he, it's never like I was, you know, it's my fault. Yeah. Which, you know, now we're all human beings here. So from a human, a human perspective, you know, if, if I, if I was driving and let's say let, like, well, uh, I don't want to like put any bad juju out there. Sure. Uh, personally, if, if like if something I did inadvertent or um, inadvertently isn't even the right word, oh, oh you no, know, okay, for me, inadvertently causing something like that to happen, 
Mm-hmm. Would like I wouldn't I would be I would be in like I would have to take medication for the rest of my life or I might end up blowing my brains out. Like I can't even imagine being responsible for something like that personally. That it would that would literally kill me. You know, jail probably would be safe for me at that point, <laughs> just because right. you know I wouldn't. That, that, I can't imagine living with that on your head. However, everybody's different. Uh, some people obviously can. There's there's jails and death rows filled with them. Uh, some people that you know have that mentality about other human beings. Uh, but I, I think with Landis, yeah, uh, for sure, absolutely. I think it's ego, and then just like you know, well. I didn't do it. It was a special effect. Like, you know, he's convinced himself that he couldn't have stopped it, I guess, maybe, Mm. which is a very human behavior. But human behaviors are not always right in situations. And if you you kind of get what I'm saying. So I imagine he just, you know, it's like, well, you know, it was horrible, horrible. And I live with that every day, but I didn't do it. Well, I mean, you didn't fly the helicopter. You didn't detonate the special effects charge, but you were the person who made ever put all the pieces on the board, you know? So there's culpability there that, sh- you know, if he would have accepted responsibility and then like, and still gotten off in a court of law, I'd have, I'd, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I don't, I don't hate anybody. I dislike him strongly because I think this is blatantly, it's blatantly his fault. I think it's his responsibility and he's just, he just denies it. You know, he'll probably deny it to his grave. But, you know, you can you can never tell what's in a man's heart, a person's heart. Uh, so hopefully he at least, uh, you know, he's he, like you said, he's he got to live with it every day. And that's ultimately, you know, that's the worst part. That's the part that would affect me the most would be having to live with something like that. Uh, he on my conscience. Doing fine. Because, <laughs> yeah. You know, every time some money comes in, a royalty check from Beverly Hills Cop or Blues Brothers, he's like, oh, yeah, he's not sad anymore. Right. But uh Anyway, so let's let's uh, let's let's go ahead and end this very <laughs> special episode part of the show, and let's uh, let's end on a good note, at least for me. Uh, you know, uh, no Back to the Future segment. Oh, I mean, uh, no, uh, in the real world segment or anything. We talked about that. That was real this world. is real world. This whole segment <laughs> is real world for you. Uh, however, uh, let's talk about Back to the Future. You know, uh, some recent stuff that we saw and did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recently beat the Guardians of the Galaxy game. Uh, awesome. Started on PlayStation Four, got a PlayStation Five, finished it on PlayStation Five. Finally, got a PlayStation Five. Was that a big uh, difference? Best game in graphics. Uh, the texture quality is like is is where you at least in that game because that game was like made for PlayStation Four, I guess, and then you know upgraded for PS Five. Right. So when you see that resolution and that texture difference, it is pretty like whoa, sharper, hmm. cl- crisper, uh, more like CG esque, so to speak. But the game looks amazing on uh, PS Four Pro before at PS5. So it looked amazing on PlayStation 4. And it looks it's, it's got that extra little you know resolution bit added on the PS5. You know, I mean, I wouldn't say it you would have to play it on PS5 because it's basically just an, you know, a quote unquote upgrade. Right. It wasn't built for it. But uh I in the MCU, like the Guardians of the Galaxy movies are two of my favorite. Absolutely. I I love those movies so much. They're so much fun. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is probably in my top three MCU movies. Mm-hmm. I just, I love, uh, I've, I've been admitted before my absolute lust for James Gunn as a director and a writer. Uh, I love his style. He's amazing. And, uh, the game, the game, the story, whew, like I didn't expect it from a guardians of the galaxy game. Wow. It's, 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 
the voice actor who does Star Lloyd, the voice actor who does Gamora, and the voice actor that does Drax are all better than the MCU versions. Hundred <laughs> percent. I wish like the the game versions are like my default like ideas of those characters now. That's how good the how good of a performance and how well this game's done. It 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 almost it could almost be Guardians of the Galaxy three, aside from how it doesn't fit into the MCU, like with stuff. This game I didn't get this game when it came out because I had gotten the Avengers game when it came out last year or year before last. And I do like that game. I didn't realize it was going to be like a destiny game in terms of like, you know, you know, you have a, you have a single player mode, which is great. It's a fun game. I really enjoy that game, but the replay value on the persistent online stuff is just not, it's not as fun as uh, like something like destiny is. And I was the only one playing it. So I didn't yeah. get to play it with any friends. Uh, and of course, you know, it had a lot of bad reviews, it didn't meet expectations, although I think it was undeservedly bashed a little unfair. And I, when I heard Guardians of the Galaxy come out, was coming out, I was like, oh, just make it should just be an expansion for the Avengers game. Thank God they didn't. The Guardians of the Galaxy game is pretty much almost like Dragon Age. Dragon Age Light. The Dragon Age, the first Dragon Age mm-hmm. game, not the second or the third one, more action RPG. More like the first one, where you're you only, you only play a Star Lord and you're given you're basically given commands to your teammate you're, you're you're being the leader you are star lord in this game so you're commanding the guardians in combat uh and it works it's so much fun so many combos that you can develop like with like i'll have group like knock all the enemies up in the air i'll have rocket throw a grenade and blow them all up in the air all sorts of cool stuff uh and the story a key to a game it's got the story is amazing it's a great story it is the best game i played last year did I play a lot of games last year? No, <laughs> but uh, I think it's better than Metroid Dread. Uh, it was another big game. I didn't. I, no, I didn't play this. The campaign of Halo Infinite. I can't speak to that. But this game, it makes you die laughing. The Guardians' banter during gameplay is there the entire time. I only heard a few things repeated, but I mean, it's it's so well done. Highest possible recommendation for the game. Uh, it's not. Like the Marvel's Avengers game is an action RPG. This one, there's a lot of like walking and talking and like making choices that affect the future, like whether or not so and so comes at the end to give you a hand, all kind of different things play in there. But uh, I finished it yesterday. It was amazing. Highest possible recommendation. Best game, video game I played in 2021, although I finished it in 2022, barely. Uh, but it came out last year. So, highest possible recommendation on that video game. And then, uh, Jesse, we didn't get to talk about it last week, but you watched it yesterday. We can talk about Ghostbusters Afterlife. Now, spoilers, if you have not seen Ghostbusters Afterlife, Mm -hmm. now that it's on demand and everything, what's wrong with you? Go watch it and come back (laughs) and hear what we have to say about it. But spoilers, 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 starting now. Uh, I fucking love that movie. I thought it was, I thought it was, I thought that's how you do nostalgia. That's how you how you balance nostalgia and continue a legacy. Cause to me it was 50, yeah. 50 heavy nostalgia, but it was going forward in the story and the, in the, in the series at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Including like even down to the soundtrack all throughout yeah. the movie. It was just like, I feel like I'm watching this in the eighties or the nineties, you know, it's exactly, exactly. And that's what the 2016 one lacked to me, mm-hmm. that movie, you know, I'm that's, you know, that's like a landmine. Cause like, if, if you don't like it, you're a woman hater, uh, or, you know, you just, Oh, you're, you're, you're just a, 
you know, you, you, I didn't like 2016 because it didn't feel like Ghostbusters. It just took the name and then went a direction I didn't care for. It wasn't badly acted. It wasn't badly directed. Uh, it had some good, there were some cool things in it. The cast wasn't the problem. The problem with the cast was, is that Dan Aykroyd wasn't Ray Stance, that Bill Murray wasn't Peter Venkman, and that Ernie Hudson wasn't Winston. Yeah. That was the problem with that movie. Like, it could have been like a, another franchise. Like, you know, they they could have put it in Chicago and it's the ghost, you know, it's like, yeah, we got, hey, what if we reopen the Ghostbusters? And that's all you have to do. And then it's like a, it is a sequel. It's not like a reboot or all that, you know, remake, however you want to word it. it and it would it would have been, I would have, you know, I didn't hate it. I don't like it, but I don't hate it. I don't think it's terrible. But this one, mm-hmm. they knew, you got, first, the gang's all, hell, hell, the gang's all here, except Rick Moranis, unfortunately. Right. Uh, you know, even, that's a crazy thing. Even, uh, I say crazy thing, but it, it fits so well is that even, uh, you know, Rick Moran, they didn't get Rick Moranis in, but they got Harold Ramis in the movie. Right. <laughs> and it worked. It like, you know, like, I, it's a it hologram, got, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it got spoiled for me that like the uh, end part, somebody, there was one little blur, like screenshot from the end where it shows them all where they're all looking at him. And I was like, God damn it. Boy. However, the opening of the movie has Egon in it. Yeah. So I would have, I, I would have assumed that would have, that was going to happen since they bring it back a CG Egon, you know, a, a CG face Egon in the beginning that, and we're talking about Ghostbusters, that mm-hmm. that would happen. And a lot of people think that that was cheesy. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. I thought it was, I thought it was amazingly well done. I, yeah, I, was I like, thought it I got, was tastefully done. It was well done. One thing I didn't understand is why didn't he get sucked into the trap? Yeah. <laughs> you just because I was like, oh, this is nostalgic, we, and then the traps go off. I'm like, why is he still here? <laughs> because he, that has, that's, that's the that's the allowance the movie gets. But like, you know, the the scene like where the and the little girl, I forget. Oh, she uh, she's a she's a really cool name actually. Um, God, I can't think of it. But it's it's a very actress name. Uh, but she was oh, great. Like name. she was a, an amazing, yeah. She's an amazing child actor. I say child. She's like you know young actor. McKenna Grace. Uh, is that her? Yeah, McKenna Grace. Yeah. yeah, like that's a that's an actress name, or a, either an, with that name, you're either an actress or you're a singer. Uh, she's been a lot of stuff. She's always been like the kid in something, like the kid version of Tanya Harding or something like that, and nice. I Tanya and the kid version of uh, somebody else in something. I was reading. Yes. She does that a lot. She's, she's very young. She was awesome in this movie. It was like that's so Egon's granddaughter. Like mm-hmm. so much so, like nailed it. Well, all the kids were but, uh, adjacent to the main characters, like. Even podcast yeah, that's a good had point. that had that hair that was like Ray's hair. <laughs> yeah, just just to meet like, and, and in the end where he cut, like, yeah, yeah, that's a very that's a very good point. They all had like kind of their uh, yeah. anagram or anagram might not be the right word. Uh, I forget what I'm saying. Just just a character that bizarre version. To. Yeah, <laughs> okay. but the four of them, like, I mean, even down to skin color, <laughs> strangely enough. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, and yeah. uh, Bill Murray's character wanted to fuck Winston. But no, <laughs> that was a little different, but in that case, yeah. but yeah, it I thought was it was like, a cool um, comparison. But I like, I like, cause I agree a hundred percent, but like rise of Skywalker, you had all this nostalgia stuff and like Chewbacca gets his medal. I saw similarities uh, there. Yeah. You know, but that was so like rise of skywalker and i did like rise of skywalker except the whole horse thing on the star destroyer which is stupid i mean that was there's always a stupid thing in every 
like new Star Wars movie. They never like could just like let it be. They have to throw something ludicrous in there that just totally destroys it for me. But anyway, uh, so it Star Wars Rise of Skywalker felt so much more like fan service, whereas to me at least, Ghostbusters Afterlife was more like actual nostalgia. Like they they handled it right. Um, like just like you said with the, the musical cues, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it's continuing the series, but it does it in such a logical way. The original Ghostbusters are old, you know, kids these days forgot about that event, you know, just like kids born after 9-11 have like, oh yeah, build, planes crash in the buildings, whatever. But for us, it's like, dude, you don't dismiss it like <laughs> right. that. Do you understand what that did, what that meant? You know, so it make you know, something in the, in 84 or 83, uh, you know, like kids these days, they don't give a shit about that. They don't give a shit about, oh yeah, space shuttle exploded. Bro, Imagine watching that as a kid, like you know, yeah. they, nope, you know, and it it worked, like it it just seems so well thought out. And then uh, how, like you know, they don't rely on the old Ghostbusters coming in till right at the end. It's not like, you know, I was expecting them to show up, like maybe Ray shows up early, like yes, I got your call. I heard some prayer and all activity going up, blah blah. And then like I got to call the guys, and then you don't know, or you don't know if anybody else is coming back, but they all show up, proton packs ready, you know, and then. Egon shows back up and that, that, the, the music that, 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 uh, that musical score when mm-hmm. McKenna Grace is like holding Gozer, which is, I didn't expect Gozer to be in it, which is Olivia Wilde, by the way, uh, uncredited, uncredited. looking yeah, bad ass. It looked like, her. like it was awesome. Like Gozer showing back up, like fully formed and everything. Like, you know, again, heavy nostalgia. I'm not saying this movie doesn't have a lot of nostalgia in it, but then like when, then the ghost hand appears on her hand, I'm like, Oh my God, like just chills. And the music was so beautiful, like a very beautiful piece of music right there. And it's Egon, the ghost Egon, like helping her. It was just like, you know, th- this, this was the, this was the goodbye we needed for not just him, but in the character, but all the original ghostbusters, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully going forward as they allude to in the end scenes, which is, the, yeah. did you watch all the way to the end? There's two oh, yeah, credits. Yeah, I watched all. That middle one is fantastic. That's that's the nostalgia one, right? Uh, that comes back, which was great. Uh, didn't expect that to happen. And then the last one is like, now we're setting up for where the series can go free of the past, mm-hmm. which is I think what Star Wars did try to do with the the sequels, but it took you know, Han dies in Episode Seven, Luke dies in Episode Eight, Leia dies in Episode Nine. Yep. You know, it's it's like fine. Okay, now you're free of the past. If you do another sequel trilogy, you don't have to worry about all that. You know, because it's done. But it, you know, Star Wars is a whole other bag of worms, uh, can of worms when it comes to that bag of worms. Ugh, gross. Uh, sick with a can. But to me, Ghostbusters Afterlife, as a as a huge huge fan of the original, did like so much so well. To you know, I think it might be off the top of my head the best case of a modern, you know, I mean, it is, a, it, this is actually, you know, technically this is Ghostbusters. Well, technically four, cause the video game is technically three. Uh, so play the video game too, for some classic Ghostbuster action. It's a good game. Mm. Although the controls are a little stiff. Uh, mm. but this movie is basically like, you know, thank you Ghostbusters, you know, your story, you know, rest easy, old friends. You're, you know, we got it. It's the, the baton has been passed. It's great. And then, you know, uh, apparently, like, you know, now that Winston's rich, I like how they, they're ending it. Like, OK, maybe he's going to, like, fund the Ghostbusters now. So right. you can still have that that one that connection to the past. But you can, now it's wide open, however you want to handle it and take the series from there with a fresh start. 
and he's less start, you know, busy and, and you than got, the other two. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, he'll he'll have to stop going to comic book conventions for a little while, but that's true. But uh, yeah, it's good. It, you know, all the character arts arcs were great. You know, Ray's still man in the bookstore. Winston got wealthy. Bill Murray's like a, a professor, not of paranormal stuff, but of marketing and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Which is, it's you know, it's all those much like the original because I've seen the original Ghostbusters. I can honestly say I've probably seen that movie over in triple digits. Might be barely, but I've seen that movie. I mean, since it came out on VHS, recording it off TV, watching it every year at least once and multiple times as a kid. I've seen the original so many times. And every time I watch it, there's something I, I, I either I saw and forgot or didn't remember or just strikes me as like the comedic, how genius the original Ghostbusters is. And to me, this one honored that, recognized that, honored it. And now, you know, it's it's good. We're good with the original. This and I think this is a blueprint for how you handle stuff like this. Honestly, you make your you make your peace with the original with a film like that, like Afterlife, and now 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 you now you're good. Do whatever the hell you want to do. You're free. You're free. Go <laughs> now. We are free. So, as you can tell, I I absolutely loved it. So. Yeah. <laughs> so it was uh, uh, a top ten for uh, top ten for last year uh, in terms of. Uh, films and actually, I didn't do this this year. Hold on, I have a I have a list. Real top quick. tens. That's yeah, an episode uh, in itself, though. Well, for just last year, though, that's like, what I mean. I would no, I'll say, yeah, okay. Next, next, next episode for the <laughs> Back to the Future. It'll be my my top ten. Now that I've seen Afterlife, and you've seen Afterlife, mm-hmm. next up, so I'm teasing the Back to the Future segment will be my personal top ten movies of last year. That I highly recommend that everybody should see all ten of them. If you want to see ten movies from twenty twenty one, those are the ten that Trey thinks you should see. Uh, as always, uh, oh, I did want to give a shout out to a uh, uh, Richard. Have it up. Where is it? Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I said Richard. <laughs> sorry, uh, Mike Hastings. Shout out to Richard, uh, whoever you are. <laughs> hey, yeah, what's up, Dick? Uh, anyway, Mike Hastings, uh, friend of friend of the pod. Uh, he mentioned when I talked about the we were doing Twilight Zone. He posted on Facebook. Uh, I'll just read his po- his original post, and I'll uh, go from there. Uh, Happy New Year's, 80s Revisited. I have a recommendation since you're doing the Twilight Zone movie. You may have seen it, but a friend of mine did a series called Cursed Films on the Shutter streaming channel, and they take an in-depth look at the accident. That's the the accident that happened on the set. It's gruesome. Uh, you, know, you know, I just responded to him. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that series, blah, blah, blah. But he did say that. He didn't mention his friend's name. But uh, Mike did say that they are working on a season two, which is awesome. Because like I said, if you have Shutter, it's like five bucks a month. Four ninety nine. It's the price of a cup of coffee. Get it to watch all the Joe Bob Briggs last drive-in content. But the Curse films is on there. They have a lot of horror movies, a lot of great stuff. If you like horror? It's a fantastic streaming service that's dedicated to horror. They got a lot of good stuff. And the the key thing is they got good original content. So Shutter does not sponsor this <laughs> podcast, although sure would be nice <laughs> to get a free Shutter subscription uh, at the least uh, for me and Jesse, and to give away once a month maybe uh, there to you. Viewers, uh, so anybody knows anybody at Shutter, let them know. But uh, anyway, so yeah, Mike, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, and Pete, uh, your friend UK Pete, I'd sent, uh, I, I sent out the call. You know, the call, the call, the quote Ray Stance from the original Ghostbusters for Peppa Pig toys. And he's helping me get some Peppa Pig toys for Violet imported from the UK. So we'll see how that goes. But Pete, just want to say uh, thank you in an email, but you know, on air, live, at least when we're recording it. Thanks so much, dude. I appreciate it. Hopefully we can get something worked out. 
and it won't be too too expensive to just ship some some good old quality Peppa Pig paraphernalia to the U.S. So, <laughs> but uh, as always. <clears throat> Send us an email, 80srevisited at gmail.com, Facebook, 80s Revisited Podcast, on Instagram, 80s underscore revisited. And please, please leave a review. We appreciate it. We've got some good ones. We've got some doozies. Uh, you know, most of them are good. So that's a good thing, right? Oh, and, yeah. and hey, if you can leave a bad review, but it's a well written review that makes us laugh, <laughs> you know, we're not, I'm not John Landis. I like, you know, right. seriously, like, I know that I go on tangents. I do bad accents. Sometimes my voice can be annoying. I just believe me, my wife knows that. So, you know, we love constructive criticism. And if you leave a bad review and it's worded well, you'll get, hey, tip of the hat and a handshake, a virtual handshake. So, but preferably, I hope you leave a good review. <laughs> but nevertheless, please do that for us. We appreciate it. And as always, our shout outs Cajun Toy Review with our good friend John in Lafayette, Louisiana, and all the way across the world with the BAMCast, Ben Wyatt. And as always, Doom Slayer. Keep it up, man. Keep it up. So next week, <laughs> we're gonna uh, we haven't done an animated movie in a long, long time. Probably since Animation Month five years ago or something like that. So next week we're gonna do an animated film, but we're gonna do an R-rated heavy mm. metal ah. animated film called Heavy Metal. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you haven't seen Heavy Metal? Get your get your get ready to put up your devil horns and rock out. Uh, I haven't seen it in forever. Uh, I think last time I saw it was when they released like uh, like a like it. I think Heavy Metal 2000 had just come out and they like re-released it or they had like a cleaned up version of it or something. So it's been a long time since I've seen Heavy Metal, but it's got some cool visuals. So get your alcohol or whatever you like to party with, sit down, relax, watch Heavy Metal for next week. Uh, I'm not sure if it's streaming anywhere. I will post that on Instagram and Facebook and all that uh, when I post the picture of the episode next week. To remind everybody that it's coming at the end of the week. Uh, if I can find it streaming somewhere, if not, I know it's right. pretty much available for purchase on Amazon. Not sure how much, but honestly, I do Three think bucks. it's streaming on Amazon. Okay, gotcha. There you go. So, if not, if you don't want to watch it, you know what? I bet it's on YouTube. <laughs> so <laughs> you probably can find it on YouTube for free. So yeah, next week, everybody, heavy metal. Hope you learned something today on this episode. I, I you know, uh, I'm a history major. Uh, and with my, at least that's what the piece of paper from LSU says. Not that it really means <laughs> shit today, because <laughs> you gotta have a you gotta have a master's or a doctorate to for your for your bachelor's degree. You know, when I graduated college, bachelor's degrees meant something. They don't really mean too much these days, unless it's in engineering or something like that. But uh, yeah, so I love I love really talking about historical things, and obviously I have my opinion on them. Uh, so if there's anything in the '80s, you know, the, uh, historically wise, that we can tie to a film. That uh, you think we might not know of or want to educate us on, let us know. We'd love to do an episode. We'd love to do the research because uh, you know, no matter how old you get, you never stop learning. So don't forget that, everybody. That's your that's the that's the more you know statement at the end of this very <laughs> special episode of Eighties Revisited. So that does it for me. Until next week, when we go rocking out with heavy metal, I remain Trey Harris, Jesse Sedgley, Cowabunga! Fuck you, John Landis. This show and more on Facebook.com slash AwesomePods. And follow us on Twitter at AwesomePods. Pods.